do welcome each one to our service this morning and trust the Lord's blessing upon us. We do welcome those who are visiting with us and those watching online. And we meeting uh, with our God uh, today. We're going to commence our worship by turning in our hymnals uh, to the Psalm 67. Uh, the Psalm 67 found at the back of the hymnal. There is a section of Psalms, and it's Psalm 67. O God, be merciful to us, and bless us in thy grace, and do thou cause to shine on us the brightness of thy face. The Psalm 67, and we'll stand as we sing, please. You may be seated. And we're going to turn in the Word of God this morning to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16. <clears throat> Matthew's Gospel, chapter 16, and we'll read from verse 13. Matthew chapter 16, and commencing to read at verse 13. And the Word of God says, and when Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, But whom? 
And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading of his precious word this morning. Let us unite together in prayer and seek the Lord as we come and meet with him and ask for his help, his blessing to be upon his work here, but also upon each of us and our congregation. Let us pray. Our eternal God and our loving, and merciful, and gracious Father in heaven, we rejoice today that we can come into thy presence, that we can sing thy praises. We thank thee for this psalm that reminds us of thy mercy. And Lord, we rejoice that thou art a merciful God, and thou art merciful in all that thou hast done for us. And we think of our sin and our iniquity and how we have fallen short of thy standard. But yet, in thy love and mercy, thou didst send the Lord Jesus Christ into this world to deliver thy people from their sins. And Lord, we rejoice today that as thy church, we have a message to proclaim and we have a message that is the great foundation of our existence, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Father, we pray that as we gather together today, that that indeed would be the central message, and that there is a Savior, and that there is a Redeemer, and that there is one who can deliver us from the snares and shackles of sin, and that we can know that forgiveness of sin, and that redemption uh, that comes from Christ alone. And Father, we thank Thee for those here in our midst who know and love Thee as their Savior, those who have been redeemed and set free from sin and from the snare of Satan. Lord, we pray that Thou would deliver us day by day from sin, deliver us from temptation, uh, deliver us from evil. And Lord, we pray that we would live righteous and godly lives glorifying thee in all things. Lord, we pray for those outside of the kingdom of God. We pray for families and loved ones outside of Christ. Lord, speak today, we pray. Move within our congregation. We think of those who have long been prayed for, that thou would move within their hearts and draw them to thyself. Father, we do remember those who are in need. We uh, do pray for each one that thou would give that grace and that help uh, we remember our brother Vern. Pray that would bless him. Remember the family circle there as well. And uh, we do remember Mrs. Chesney. Uh, remember Clayton Snow. We do remember uh, Lord. Uh, we remember Debbie. We do remember uh, Steve Greer's mother as well. And uh, we pray, Lord, for all of these uh, dear individuals. And we 
uh, pray for their needs. And Lord, there are others as well. And we uh, pray that Thou would give that strength, give healing, give grace. Uh, we rejoice uh, in the words of the Apostle Paul uh, when he spoke of uh, the sufficient grace, Lord, that Thou uh, did give to him. My grace is sufficient for Thee. And we thank Thee for this portion of Thy Word that reminds us so clearly uh, that in the circumstances and in the difficulties of life, there is grace that is sufficient from Thee to us. And we pray that in each of our situations, we will know that grace that is sufficient uh, to meet the trial and uh, to help us rise above the problem. And Lord, to help us in all these things to glorify Thee. Father, we... Remember the, remember the radio ministry. Uh, we pray that Thou would be pleased to uh, continue to bless that work. We think of Pastor Golliger and his work there. Uh, we do remember the Golliger family at this time as well. And uh, we think of our brother Calvin and his surgery that is uh, planned for the 1st of March. We pray that Thou would be pleased to uh, undertake in all things. And we ask Thee that this surgery would indeed be a success and that uh, our brother would know uh, thy healing hand. Lord, we uh, look to thee that thou would bless. We do remember our sister congregations. Uh, we think, Father, of the uh, work there in Prince George and in Williams Lake. We thank thee that we had fellowship with our brother, the Reverend Simpson, yesterday at the men's breakfast. Uh, we thank thee for that word he brought to us. And we pray that would bless him as he preaches today. Uh, may he know thy power. May he know the infilling of thy spirit. Uh, bless those works we ask. We do remember Penticton and Calgary. Remember, Father, the works in Ontario. Uh, remember New Brunswick as well, Fredericton. And, Father, down across the border and further afield, bless our sister congregations. And as thy word goes forth this day, visit us, we pray. Visit us with revival. Visit us with uh, thy grace and thy blessing being poured out upon us. Give us a love afresh for thy word, O God, uh, that we would flee from sin and we would flee uh, from the snare of the evil one, living for thee. Forgive us for our sins, we pray. Help us uh, to conquer them, to examine ourselves, to deal with these things by the help of thy spirit, that we would live righteous lives that testify of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, bless us today as we worship. Give us help and draw near to us, we ask and we pray. For Christ's sake, amen. Amen. We're going to turn again on our hymnals to hymn 334. Uh, the hymn 334. If you're looking at the bulletin, uh, you may... I think that something is a little strange if you were at the adult Sunday school this morning and uh, we considered Athanasius against the world and you might be thinking it's the pastor against the bulletin, uh, what's going on here? Uh, but the hymns we're singing are the hymns that are in the bulletin for tonight and the hymns that are in the bulletin for this morning are tonight's hymns. Uh, there was, uh, I suppose, a mistake uh, that was made and uh, I uh, certainly uh, didn't uh, notice uh, some things, and I put it into the bulletin uh, the wrong way round. And so uh, that is why when it was noticed, the bulletin was already printed. And well, we, we should save some paper. We
we should save some ink and not redo it. And so that's why it might be a little confusing this morning. But the hymn 334, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. A mistake in the bulletin regarding the hymns doesn't take away from this great hymn that reminds us of the Savior's love, that marvelous love, that wonderful love. And so let us stand to sing. Let us really praise the Lord and rejoice in his love for us. Three, three four, standing please. seated. We're turning, we're turning in the Word of God this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And God willing, next Lord's Day uh, we'll come to the end of this chapter and then uh, we'll 
uh, move into uh, chapter 4. First Timothy chapter 3, and we'll read the whole passage this morning, and we'll commence at verse 1, read through to the end of verse 16. And the Word of God says, this is a true saying, if a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy or filthy looker, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take her off the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them that a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Likewise must the deacons be grieve, not double tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy of filthy lucre holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon, being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grieved, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree, and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was confessed in the flesh, justified in the Spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Amen. And may the Lord bless the reading of his precious and infallible truth this morning. We do extend a word of welcome again to each one present here, to those who are visiting. You are very welcome today to gather with us. to you as well, uh, that wherever you may be, and uh, maybe you're part of our congregation normally, maybe you're not, we do welcome you, and we trust the Lord's richest blessings as you listen and watch today. We have our prayer meeting at 5.30 downstairs, uh, evening worship at 6 p.m. On Wednesday, study and prayer meeting in the prayer room and on Zoom. And uh, there is a link that goes out on Wednesday for that. If you would like to be added to that list, uh, then do let me know. Today, uh, being the last uh, Sunday in the month, the evening service. Then on Sunday, the 10th of March, after the evening service, around 7.20 p.m., uh, we are downstairs. And if you are interested in baptism, myself as soon as possible, 
and uh, there will be uh, a short time of some food and fellowship uh, after that baptism as well. And a young man in our congregation, uh, Cole, is being baptized. And so do pray for him as he comes and takes this step in his Christian faith. Friday the 29th of March, uh, we have our good And we're commencing this again after uh, several years of COVID and a vacancy as well. And so uh, do uh, remember that. There's advance notice there for that service. And we have recently installed a new carpet and we're seeking volunteers to help with the weekly vacuuming and cleaning of the new carpet upstairs. And there is a clipboard on the wall uh, by the table. There's a list of dates. And if you can help with any of those dates, cleaning the carpet, any time that might suit you, Monday to Saturday off a week, so that it's ready for the following Sunday, then do put your name down. Please speak to our brother Charlie, and he can help you with access to the building for that as well. Do remember the Western Canada Family Conference. There are information leaflets available as well, and we're asking people to, if you're coming, to register. Uh, we need to know uh, some of the numbers attending uh, for catering plans. And so if you are planning to come, uh, do send an email to the address on uh, the uh, table. We'll, maybe put a we'll have to put a list out as well, and we'll maybe get that sorted uh, for this evening. Uh, so do uh, remember that. Do pray for myself. I head uh, to Calgary on Thursday evening. Uh, there's a wedding uh, that is uh, taking place on Friday, and I've been asked to preach uh, the gospel at that wedding. And so do remember uh, my wife and I, as we head across on Thursday evening, uh, preach at the wedding service on Friday, and then we come back on Saturday. So we'd appreciate your prayers uh, regarding uh, that ministry for the Lord. We're going to turn in our hymnals to the hymn 500 and 24. 524, leaning on the everlasting arms, will remain seated while our tithes for the Lord's work are received, please.
pray. Dear Lord, we thank thee for bringing us into thy presence this morning. We thank thee for the privilege we have to come and worship together. And we ask that you would speak to our hearts, take our tithes, take our offerings, use them for the furtherance of the gospel in this house, in this land, and also across the airwaves. We ask that you would bless your word also as we hear it. Bless our pastor this morning. We ask you'd give him the words to speak and that you'd give us all a joy in serving our Savior. We thank thee for every blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's change our positions. We'll stand to sing 524, leaning on the everlasting arms. We'll sing verse 1 again, standing to sing verse 1. Just verse 1. be seated. We're turning again in the Word of God to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. And we'll read again verse 14 and verse 15. We have already considered the rule of the elder in the church, the rule of the deacon, and now we come to concluding matters uh, concerning these things and the concluding concerns of this particular chapter. 1 Timothy 3, verse 14, These things write I unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, uh, the pillar and ground of the truth. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. May the Lord bless the reading of his word and let us unite together in prayer, asking for the Lord's help and the Lord's blessing as we consider his truth today. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we rejoice today that we can be found again under the sound of thy precious word. We pray that our hearts would be prepared to receive thy truth, uh, that Father, as we come together and as we consider what thou art teaching thy people here, that thou would teach us and teach us individually and personally and that we will learn from thee this day and that our hearts would be touched by thy truth. And that, Father, as we seek to live for thee and serve thee, uh, that what we consider today would edify our souls and build us up and help us 
uh, to live for thee, our God. Lord, we pray for those outside of Christ, and we pray that thou would speak to their hearts, thou would draw them to thyself. And, Father, we pray that uh, they would see something here, the wonder, the power, the grace and love of our Savior. Father, bless us. Uh, give us help by thy Spirit, we ask of thee, and glorify thy name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. The definition, nature, structure, and government of the Church of Jesus Christ is perhaps one of the most controversial and debated issues within Christianity. We only need to consider a small portion of church history to understand that particular point. The early church, which later became the Roman Catholic Church, split into the Eastern Orthodox Church, and then it split again the Roman Catholic Church as the Protestant Church was formed in the 1500s uh, due to the Reformation. And then coming from that division, uh, you have your Presbyterians, your Dutch Reformed, Lutherans, Anglicans, Presbyterianism uh, grew into Irish Presbyterians and Scottish Presbyterians, which then influenced North America. And so today we have Presbyterians, Free Presbyterians, Reformed Presbyterians, Evangelical Presbyterians. Uh, we have Free Presbyterians in Scotland that are different than us. And we have the Free Churches in Scotland. And we have the PCA, the OPC, the PCUSA, and I've probably forgotten many of them. And that is just in the English-speaking world as well. There are several Dutch Reformed churches, not only in North America, uh, the NRC, the CRC, the FRC, etc., but also on continental Europe. The Anglicans have grown and split into the Methodists and the various types of Methodists, and we need to remember uh, those who are Baptist as well. And then we move into Pentecostalism. And then we move into charismatism and all the different denominations and individual churches that flow from those theological, theological positions. And then we see something. The history of defining the church from a practical perspective is very complicated indeed. Many of these churches have their different views on church government and structure and the nature of the church and how the church is to be governed. In the New Testament, we have the word church mentioned on numerous occasions, and it is the Greek word ecclesia, from which we get the word ecclesiastical in the English. Ecclesia is what is called in Greek a compound word. It comprises two words that have been joined together. Uh, firstly, we have ek, which means out, and we have kalio, which means to call. And so the very basic meaning of that word ecclesia is to call out. The church is something or some people who have been called out. Called out of the world, called out of sin, called and separated unto the Lord Jesus Christ. And the word church itself denotes the assemblies of those who have been called out, those called out ones, or the denominations which comprise those who are called out and believe similar things concerning the church and religion. The church itself is a divine institution. It's not a mere human invention. 
I would like to think that we all understand that. The concept and the nature and the definition and the very institution of the church of Christ itself is of God. The church owes its continued existence to the presence and power of the Lord. The word church in the New Testament can refer to the whole body of the faithful, whether in heaven or on earth. The church invisible, every believer who has ever existed. The word can also refer to in Scripture to the whole body throughout the world of those that outwardly profess Christ. We have the church visible. And across the world there are gatherings of individuals who profess Christ who are part of the visible church. And the word again can be used in Scripture to denote the body of believers that meet in any particular place. And so we have the church globally. We have uh, the church being the a great number of God's people across time and distance. Uh, but then we have that applied locally as well. The church that meets here, the church that meets there, worshiping God together. And the word church can be applied in the New Testament as well to a number of congregations that are associated together. And it is also referred and applied in the New Testament to a body of professing believers in any place represented by those who are the leadership within the church. But the church itself is a special institution. It's an institution where Christ is uplifted, where he is worshipped, where God comes and blesses his redeemed people. The church is God's normal instrument of evangelizing and discipleship and teaching. And as believers, we must understand the vital importance of the church and how the church operates and how we are blessed and how we live within that concept of the church. And we see that in Acts chapter 2. Uh, those who were saved after the day of Pentecost uh, were added unto the number of believers and were told they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. And it continues to explain what these believers did. They continued, as the Word of God goes on to say, continued continuing daily. Their Christian life was a daily thing. Their association with the church was a daily thing. They were not saved and redeemed and knew Christ and forgot about Christ and his people, but they lived for him, and they did so through the existence of what is the New Testament church. The church deals with the cause of its Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul doesn't shirk away from this. He sets out firmly and clearly in these opening chapters of 1 Timothy what he believes concerning the church and what he believes how Timothy and his congregation go about living and worshiping and serving together as the church. And that's an important thing for you and I, for us as a congregation to understand how we go about worshiping God, why we go about worshiping God. And there is within the church then and Paul outlines this, an expected form of behavior by the Christian in verse 15. But if I tarry long, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself 
in the house of God. Not merely by the leaders, of course. The context is to Timothy. But us all are to behave a certain way. If I were to say, well, certainly that applies to children. And as we come and as we worship God together, uh, the children are not running up and down the aisles and playing chase or what we used to do as kids, stick in the mud, uh, where we run away from some person who was it. Uh, they touch us and we have to stand still. And then one of our friends, ha they have to come and free us by going down and crawling uh, between our legs. If we were meeting together and the children were running about doing that, we would think, well, hang on. There's to be a reverence here. There's to be a respect here. And that's not happening because in the middle of the service, the children are running around playing games. And we would all understand something is not right with that. But the apostle here, he's not talking specifically about children. He's talking about you and I. He's talking about the leaders of the church. He's writing this letter that the church would also receive and understand that we all have to conduct ourselves in a certain way. It's not just about sitting in the pew, looking straight ahead at the preacher and folding our arms and not being distracted physically. It's about the mental distraction. It's about coming with our hearts prepared to worship the Lord. It's about coming together and acting and behaving in a certain way. And the apostle has already outlined that here in 1 Timothy and in chapter 1 regarding sound doctrine. Chapter 2, we have the various aspects of, of gender roles within the church. We have dress as well. In chapter 3, we have the leadership in the church. And so Paul is saying, in light of all I've said, the church and the leaders are to behave in a certain way. Why? Because the life of the church and the ministry of the church is so vital and so important. We're not to have that carefree spirit toward it. We spoke about Athanasius at the adult Sunday school this morning. We spoke about him being against the world, as some have said. Standing for the truth of God. Standing for the deity and divinity of the Lord Jesus Christ against those in the world and in the church who oppose that. He was a one-man band, as they say, standing firm. And how many had a carefree attitude? They didn't care about the importance of this truth. They didn't stand with Athanasius. They let him get on with it. And they had their heads, as it were, in the sand. But dear believer, the same can be true when we consider the importance of the church. When we consider the importance of coming together and worshiping and the importance of the truth that is being presented and the importance of worshiping God and serving God through his church, we're not to have a carefree attitude. It's something that is serious and something that matters. And if we truly have that right view and understanding of the church of Christ, that will change our lives. It will change how we approach the church and how we approach worship and how we approach prayer because we'll realize we have to be here. We have to come and worship. We have to come and pray. We have to come and serve the Lord together as his people because that is what the church of Christ is about. And Paul is dealing with all the aspects here of conduct. We need to know as the church how we go about 
being the church. And so verse 15 brings us into this subject of understanding the church and a subject that each of us should give much attention to. What is our view regarding understanding the church? Is the church a social club? Oh, the church might do a good breakfast for the men on a Saturday morning or the ladies or a good supper some Sunday evenings when everyone comes and they bring food and we have great fellowship. And that fellowship is an important part. The church is not a social club. It's not a sports club. It is the church of the living God. And Paul emphasizes that in this verse. How thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And he's emphasizing the greatness and the importance of Christ's church. What is our view about the church? Do we have the same view as the apostle does? That for our spiritual good, there must be that right conduct in all that we do. And so we're going to consider this morning understanding the church understanding the church. We see firstly that we must, un we must know the particular function of the church. We must know the particular function of the church. That is important. We must know the particular functions of the church of Christ. If you were to apply for a job and you go into the office and you sit down and you are asked the very first question, what do you know about this company? What do you know about this business? And your response is, well, I don't actually know. I just know you're looking for someone to be a receptionist or someone to be an engineer or someone to go onto the retail floor and sell your product, but I have no idea what you actually do. And someone else comes in and says, well, yes, your company was founded 1973. You're a leading supplier of this particular type of product. You have several lines and you supply the businesses and uh, there's a great history here. You've opened up branches in Vancouver and Calgary and Seattle and it's a multinational company with so many thousand employees. Well, they've done their homework. They know what they're getting into. The person who, I have no idea. Well, maybe you're not going to get that job. And it is vital as Christ's church that we know what the church does and we know what the church is. And Paul lays that out for us. He says here, the church, the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And by implication of this verse, we can understand that the church is the family of God, the family of God, <coughs> the Greek word that is uh, translated a house of God here. It is used in Scripture. It can mean a physical house, but it can also uh, denote, and it does denote in Scripture, a spiritual house, the family of God and the church of Christ. And this thought of the church as a household is used within Scripture many times. The apostle in 1 Timothy 3, as we've considered already, makes the comparison about the elder ruling his family and ruling the church. The elder, if he rules his family well, then he can rule the church well because the church is very much like a family as well. 
The church or the family of God is made up of those who are the sons and daughters of the Lord, those who were once enemies and rebels and sinners, but now have been adopted into the family of God by the working of the Holy Spirit. Our catechism asks the question, what is adoption? An adoption is an act of God's free grace whereby we are received into the number and have a right to all the privileges of the sons of God. If you were to adopt today and a son came into your home, you're not going to say to that child, well, you're not actually really part of this family. You're not actually my son. And because of that, see the shed outside? That's where you sleep. And you only get one meal a day. And your clothes have to be falling off your back before you get more clothes. You wouldn't do that. If you're adopting, you're bringing that child into your family as if that child is your own. They have the privileges. They have the blessings. They have their room. They have their comforts. They have those things provided for them as if they were your own child. And that is the same with adoption. Because of our sin, we're far from God, but by salvation and repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and the working of God's Spirit, we are saved, we are adopted into his family. We're received into that number of the family of God. We have a right to all those privileges. He's our Father. We can pray to him. We know his blessing. We know his help. We have a right to all those privileges because we're no longer an enemy. We're a child that has been adopted in. 1 John 3 reminds us, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Therefore the world knoweth us not, because it knew him not. John 1 tells us, But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe in his name. And so Scripture reminds us that we can be called the sons of God. And that doctrine of the family of God, it emphasizes to us that we are all brothers and sisters in Christ, those who are saved. There's that deeply rooted bond between us. Why? Because of Christ. Because of our Savior. And as we all have our place within our physical family, so we all have our place within the family of God. And that is a vital thing. Is that not something to rejoice in, dear believer? That the church is the family of God. The church that we have is that visible expression of God's family. And though we may have been born on a different continent, to some here, I was born on a different continent, on an island on that continent, compared to many here thousands and thousands of kilometers apart. Some of you maybe were not born in North America or even Canada like myself. But we have that bond. Not because we might have permanent residency or citizenship or a visa that allows us to be in this country. But we have a bond in Christ. We have a bond because we are the family of Christ born into the family of God, as part of his church. We are part of his family. So how can we become then the sons of God? How can we become hers? How can we enter into the family of God? It is only through our Savior 
and his work of salvation. You see the church being that great gathering of God's people through the ages has a specific requirement that each one knows Christ and has turned from their sin and believes that he died for them. They're bought with that price, the precious blood of the Savior. And being part of the church means that you're redeemed, that you're saved, that your sins are forgiven through the finished work of Christ. He is the great and the chief cornerstone of his church. We're part of the family of God because of our Savior and his salvation. But the church is the house of God. It's a place where God dwells. John Calvin said that there are good reasons why God should call the church his house, for not only has he received us as his sons by the grace of adoption, but he himself dwells in the midst of of us. He himself dwells in the midst of us. How marvelous that is. And again, that is because of Christ. And what has Christ done? He has reconciled those who were sinners. All of us who were sinners. He's brought us near to God. He has reconciled us to our Savior. He has redeemed us. Oh, do you know that redemption today? Do you know that Christ is your Savior? Though you may attend the church and though you may say, I'm part of the church, do you truly know Christ? Are you truly part of his church because he is your Savior and he's your master and he's your king? The Lord dwells with us and as we worship him, he dwells with us. But notice as well that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Coming back to verse 15, we see that. The pillar and ground of the truth. And what does that mean? Well, not only is the church the home of God's people and the home of the Lord who dwells with us, but the church is also the home of God's truth. And this is what the apostle is teaching. If you want to know God and his truth, then you need to come into contact with his church, for his church knows that truth. And more importantly, the church is the pillar or the support for holding up that truth. And is that not what the church does? The church is that scriptural framework that lifts up the truth of God. What does the church do in its ministry? It lifts up the truth of God. It declares the truth. Roman Catholic theologians often use this verse to argue against the Reformation doctrine of Scripture alone. They say, well, the church is the foundation of the truth here. It's the pillar and ground of the truth. It's the foundation. It is not the only rule of faith and practice, as Protestants say. And so they will say we obey church tradition as well as the Bible. But... They do not understand that the ultimate bedrock foundation of the church is the Word of God. The Word of God is the foundation of the church of Christ. It is the church that is founded upon that truth. It is the church that lifts up that truth. We were to look at the Greek here we would find that <coughs> there is a reference to that which is a buttress. 
A buttress is not a building's foundation, but it's part of the supporting structure. It helps to stabilize the walls and pillars of a large building. And in the same way, the truth of the gospel of Christ, sorry, the church of Christ, helps to hold that truth of the gospel steady, steady. The truth is supported. The truth is supported. When we look at the Greek, in the original language here, the pillar and ground of the truth, the, in the Greek, uh, we find that there is a reference to a pillar rather than a definite article. The church is a pillar, and there's a reference, some would say then, to every congregation, every church is the pillar of the truth. Every church is to uphold the truth. When we look at the church in Ephesus, they had there the temple of Diana. That temple had many pillars that held up the weed of the roof. Each one of those pillars had a job to do, and each pillar, each church has a work to do to hold up the truth of the gospel, to hold up the truth of God. Dear believer, you and I, through how we conduct ourselves, and how we behave within the church of Christ, we hold up the truth. If our behavior brings reproach upon Christ, then how are we holding up the truth to conduct ourselves well, to live for Christ in such a way that brings glory to him and obeying what the apostle is saying here. We need to understand the importance of the church as it lifts up the truth of the gospel. Calvin spoke here and he said, could it have been described in loftier language? Is anything more holy than the everlasting truth which embraces both the glory of God and the salvation of men? He says, what a wonderful truth this is that the church is to grasp and understand and preach. Oh, that we would understand that particular function of the church as part of God's church, holding up the truth, being the family of God. But then secondly, we must believe in the purposeful aim of the church. We must believe in the purposeful aim of the church. The weighty matter of good behavior in the church emphasizes the aim of the church, an aim that has great purpose because the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. And therefore, by good behavior, there is to be a practical desire then that the purpose of the church would go forward. That this purpose would be upheld. And dear believer, if you desire to conduct yourself, whether you are a deacon, the elder, the pastor, whether you're part of this congregation, is there that desire that your conduct does not bring harm to the testimony of Christ in his church. That society will not look upon the church and think, they say that the church of Christ separated to him. But wait till you hear who's inside. A bunch of rascals who treat others with disdain, who trample over them to earn their money and to 
grow their business or whatever it might be. There's no love. There's no grace. And because our conduct is viewed by the world in a negative way, the the testimony of Christ and his church is greatly hindered. Greatly hindered. I know of communities where there is a Christian church and that Christian church is very small in number but because of things that had happened in that particular church the community would not go inside would not come and visit would not come and hear the preaching would not associate whether they are Christians or not they have very little time because of what had happened over the years. The testimony was destroyed. The testimony was gone. Oh, the Lord would keep us from these things and we would understand the purposeful aim of the church. And firstly, it is to glorify God. Is that not what we ought to do in all things? Man's chief end, the catechism says, is to glorify God. And are we glorifying God in all that we do, in our hardships and in our trials? The Apostle Paul had the right attitude. He said that he would not boast in anything else other than the cross of Christ. And that word boast in Galatians 6 means to glory. He gloried in Christ and his salvation. Why? Because it is a powerful salvation, an exclusive salvation, for he is the only Savior. Paul was facing a difficult time. He was preaching the truth of Christ. It was unacceptable by many and he faced dangers and eventually it is believed that he lost his life in Rome during the reign of Emperor Nero. And in the adult Sunday school we considered the reign of Nero and we heard of the violent persecution of Christians by the Roman Empire and it is believed that Paul was one of those martyrs who gave his life. He did not quiver in his support and love for Christ. Why? Because he was a saviour his master, his redeemer, his friend. When he wrote to the Corinthians, he spoke about his thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan to buffet me, to hinder me from doing the work of God. And he prayed that it would be removed. And God said, no, you have to endure this. But the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for thee. What wonderful words. And how could Paul then go forward in the work of God because of Christ. His grace is sufficient. He could glorify God in his trials and in his infirmities because he was trusting Christ for salvation, for help, for strength. Dear believer, as the church of Christ, we're to glorify him in all that we do in our lives and through the labors within his church. We're to fulfill the great commission secondly here. The church is to be a preaching church, a teaching church, an evangelizing church. Mark 16, 15, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. Good conduct helps that aim. Good conduct helps that aim. To bless the flock is another aim of the church. To edify the flock, to build up the church and the people of God. Not to root out and destroy us but to build us up and how is that done through the word of God being preached but good conduct helps that it helps that 
For example, if as pastor I made the decision that, well, preaching is not all Scripture says it is. It's not the main means of us being taught and fed and edified. So we're going to set Scripture aside. We'll read a few verses. We'll say a couple of words on a Sunday morning. And then we'll sing. Or we'll do something else. Or we'll have a short service and go for coffee and talk one-to-one because... Is that not more interesting and better than sitting and listening to a sermon? And what immediately would happen? Well, the preaching of the Word has been set aside. That means, and we see that in Acts 20, where Paul speaks about them being edified and built up by the Word of God. It's set aside. And therefore, the flock will not be blessed in the same way because the preaching of the Word is the means appointed by the Lord to edify and build up His church. And what would happen, the conduct and the decisions made would prevent that. And so we're to pray that decisions that are made by the leadership and the decisions made by ourselves personally would be decisions of good conduct that we would be edified, that we would be built up. The Westminster Directory of Public Worship speaks about worship and speaks about how we are to approach coming to worship God. We're not to wake up, for example, at 10 past 10 on a Sunday morning. Oh no, church is in 20 minutes and you get up and you get a shower quickly and Uh, You're getting dressed as you run toward the door and you forget your Bible and you forget to pray or seek the Lord or ask Him to bless the service and the sermon to you and you jump into your car and you race down the road and you come into church stressed and thinking you were going to be late and people thinking, oh, he's late. People are late for various reasons. Many of those reasons, perhaps not their own fault, so we should be careful before we judge why someone is late. But you can come in late and sit down and your first thought of God really is whenever you sing the opening hymn. You've not prayed for God to bless. You've not prayed for the Lord to bless the preacher. There's been none of that. There's been no preparation. That's what the director of public worship stresses, the importance of the preacher's role, but the importance of the role of the congregation to understand that as we come to worship, it's a serious thing. And to be blessed by God, we need to prepare our hearts. We need to prepare our hearts. Oh, that we would do so. We would do so. And make sure that our hearts are prepared. There can be exceptions to that. Sometimes we generally can be running late. But normal circumstances, we shouldn't do that. I remember uh, preaching in Scotland. And I preached a morning service in a church. I had to drive about an hour and a half, an hour and 45 minutes down the road in the afternoon to preach an afternoon service. After that service was finished, I had to drive all the way back to preach at an evening service And the road, it was before improvements were made. Uh, The road was slow. I was caught behind traffic. And uh, I was running a little late. And then I had to find somewhere to park. I found somewhere to park. I went into the church. 
and I was panting and sweating and uh, really worked up trying to get there in time to start the service. And it was a couple of minutes uh, past the start time. And of course, because of traffic, I was late for the prayer meeting and everything. And so uh, the man who was there, uh, he was at the door. He welcomed me in and asked how the other service had went. And he said to me, sit down there at the back. And we sat beside each other. And I'm panicking because I thought, I need to start the service. He's talking away and asking how the other service went and being friendly. And five minutes or so passed. I was calmed down. And then I went up to do the service. And his thinking was, well, we can take a few minutes. We know there's a big rush, the pastor getting up. It wasn't the first time. But it's better for him to sit down and catch his breath and calm down rather than race to the pulpit and lead the service and lead the worship in, in a worked-up state. We can understand that. It's good to calm down first. And why is that? Because the importance of worship, the importance of leading worship and bringing the people to worship God. We need to have the right frame of mind. We need to have preparation. We prayed as well. Just the back of the church, the Lord would bless the service. That's important. And so these things apply to preacher. They apply to congregation that the Lord would bless. One of the aims is to support the leadership. This chapter is all about conducting oneself in the life of the church. And one important aspect is good conduct and the support of believers in a local church helps the leadership in their service of the Lord. How can a leadership serve the Lord when there's infighting and grumbling and disagreement and everyone trying to do their own thing? There's a church in Northern Ireland like that. It actually hit the news headlines. There was a big split about 10 years ago. Half sided with the pastor and half wanted to get rid of the pastor. Half said they had a legitimate meeting where they voted out the pastor in their system of church government. The other half said it was an illegal meeting. And everything spilled out into the parking lot of the church after several weeks and months of this. And, of course, it made, in Northern Ireland, it would make the news headlines. The police were called to try and stop uh, the uh, big row uh, becoming any more than individuals just shouting at one another. How sad that is to see that. There's no support of the leadership. There's no blessing of the flock because all these things came in and the testimony was affected in the local community. Being an independent church, congregational government, there's no oversight. No presbytery could come in and say, sort yourselves out. This is how. And let's do this. All that the union could do that they belonged to was give advice and try and guide. They couldn't turn and say, we're going to come and sort this out because they had no right to because of that system of government. In our situation, the presbytery would come and help to deal with the matter. But it would be a very sad thing if it ever got to that. We're all laborers together. We need to understand that. Paul tells us that First Corinthians chapter 3. Laborers together for the Lord and for his gospel. Whether you're an elder, a deacon, a pastor, someone in the congregation, we labor together for the cause of Christ. And we need to understand that. That is part of the work of the church and let us engage in good conduct to do so. But finally and very quickly, thirdly, we must prioritize the powerful identity 
of the church. We must prioritize the powerful identity of the church. Paul does this. He says that he's hoping to come to them shortly, but if he tarries, if he's not able to come, well, there's a priority here in what they need to do. And so he writes it so that they know how they know to behave as the church. And why is that so important? That preserves the identity, the powerful identity the church has as the church of Christ, the church of the living God. Paul prioritized this message because the health benefit and well-being of the church is essential, and we need to understand that ourselves. Why is Paul stressing the importance of preaching and sound doctrine and leadership and gender, gender roles, because it all matters. It is all important. It will affect that identity of Christ's church as the church with the message of the truth, the pillar and ground of the truth. If we were to say, well, Paul's teaching on elders, we don't agree with that. Let's get rid of that. Let's not practice that. And deacons, well, let's not practice that either. Let's get rid of all these qualifications and discernments regarding those who lead within the church, then who will be leaders within the church? Quite possibly men who aren't these things. And as time passes by, what happens? Well, the preaching changes and the doctrine changes and the style of worship changes and the church itself and its whole outlook changes moving away from the New Testament model of the church, preaching the gospel of Christ. Paul's prioritizing these things so the church continues and the church moves on in the future. And the church is an institution we must treasure, we must love, we must pray for, we must be involved in. Her identity as the church and that powerful identity of being the pillar and ground of the truth must be preserved from all compromise and all attempts to destroy the church. And so a strong church, a united church, a praying church, sends out the message to the world that she has the truth of the gospel. And as she preaches Christ and stands for Christ, we see that powerful identity because of our Savior. And dear believer, as we close, we ought never to hold the church in low esteem. Oh, it's Sunday, and church is on, but... My friends, they're going to the lake. The hockey game is on. A local store is a special event. And these things then are more important than worshiping Christ who died for you. More important than hearing his truth. Dear believer, what we're taught here is we need to understand what the church is and practice that and believe that. Oh, that we would understand the vital importance of the truth, desire to sound out the glorious message of Christ and Him crucified and preserve that and serve that by good conduct, by living our life in a righteous way because Christ has saved us and delivered us and helped us by His Spirit to live for Him. May the Lord bless His word this morning for His name's sake. Amen. Amen. Going to turn in our hymnals to hymn 525. 525. When we walk with the Lord in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way. 525, and we'll stand as we sing, please.
Let us pray. Eternal God and a loving Father in heaven, we thank thee today for thy word to our hearts. We pray that we would understand what the church is, that we would desire to be part of thy church, that, Father, those who are outside of Christ, that thou would draw them to thyself, that they too would know what it is to be part of the church of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, bless us. Meet our needs. Bring us again to thy house this night. And may the love of God, our Father, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, and the fellowship of God the Holy Spirit be with us all. Amen.